I am Susie Rapp, and I am from Eureka, Illinois. I am an accountant. I like to think of myself as a cooler than some accountants. I grew up in church, went to college, got involved in the campus crusades and all the campus ministries. And then um, when I graduated, floated around to a couple churches and then stepped away from the church when I met the boy. In 2008, I was getting ready to go through a divorce. And so knew I needed to get back to my faith roots and found First Christian and a wonderful small group that were some great friends and to help get through that transition. I think anytime you hit a major milestone in life or a trauma, a divorce, I think the only way you can get through that is by the grace of God. I'm a firm believer that no matter what you've gone through, and I feel like I've had a pretty messy adult life, that God can make beauty from those ashes and redeem the mistakes that you've made or the choices that you've made. If I didn't have faith, I probably never would have taken the biggest step of my life by adopting my son as a single mom. Like, I don't think I would have had the strength or the push or the nudge uh, to do it, to get through it, to even take that first step. I didn't want to be a mom. Uh, I wanted to be a ceiling breaker, glass shattering, powerful woman. <laughs> <laughs> within the business world. Uh, when I first got married, that's that was our choice. We were never gonna have kids. I wanted to live the, the, the good life, the make a lot of money, have a lot of prestige, travel the world. I quickly realized it's not all as corrected to be. It's not fulfilling. It doesn't make who you are. And after about a year, I started following different adoption blogs and Lots of people I knew were starting the adoption process. I started feeling the pull that this was an avenue I should be taking, or we should be taking. And um, talked to my husband at the time, and he was like, absolutely not. Shortly after that conversation, kind of our whole marriage started unraveling. And so we ended up getting a divorce. About six months later, he had a change of heart. We started going to church together. We did the counseling thing. We got remarried, and the goal was to be we'll have a family of our own. He already had two children, but we would expand that. Ultimately, that didn't work out and we made another choice to divorce. So that's my baggage messy. Two divorces, same guy. But God really used that. He redeemed those actions. When you have two divorces in your history, it's hard. Because um, when I, growing up, I never dreamt I'd be that girl, ever. The second time I walked away from my marriage or made those choices, um, there's not a doubt in my mind that I hadn't done everything I could to make that work. And so when the divorce happened, a lot of people would think that I only did that to start a family. And that couldn't have been the furthest thing from my mind, actually. I thought I would get remarried and then start a family. But the summer after, uh, the divorce, we were sitting in church and we were singing Oceans. I literally just felt the nudge, like, this is your time. You need to step out on the water. You need to trust me. I'm going to take you places you never thought you would go. Because 
I'm a business owner, and that means I work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I work seven days a week during tax season. Um, I had another friend who's like, don't ever do this as a single mom. You keep, it's too hard. <laughs> and I had that in my head. I'm like, people are going to think I'm crazy. Um, and I am. <laughs> but God doesn't think you're crazy. And so I started the process and kind of was just like, God, if this is tr like, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're going to open doors, you're going to make this just happen. And he <laughs> threw them all wide open. Start to finish, less than a year, Noah was home. The phone call came August 31st of 2016. And sorry. She called and she goes, we have a child for you to look at. And I'm like, okay. And then I finally get home that night and I can get onto my email and I look up at the picture and there's just one picture of Noah completely smirking, like as a one-year-old little boy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's even got the rap sassiness. Like, you are totally my kid. And so I said yes. And nine months later, literally from the day I got his file, I was leaving for China and um, to pick him up. And he's been in our family for three years now. He has completely been my beauty from the ashes. He has made everything that I've gone through in life worth it. This phase of my life is just all about Noah. I'll never forget that my parents had no clue how I would be as a mom because I'm such a high-strung <laughs> person and no patience and he is the only one I'm patient with, but I feel like this is where he wants me. When I meet him, I want him to say, you did a good job raising that child. I could care about, I couldn't care about anything else, but doing right by Noah, that's what I think God wants me to do right now. You know, 10 years ago, God just started with, okay, you can't adopt, but you can do something. So that was just a monthly donation or finding people who were adopting and donating to them or, you know, and then the next step was a missions trip or, and, you know, and then ultimately leads but to adopting. But even if you can't do the big thing of adoption or anything, any kind of volunteer, there's always something small you can do. And that one small act may not seem much to you, but to that person or to that organization or to that community, it could mean the world. If you feel a nudge or you feel God kinda step out in faith, walk the water with him, you know, take that, trust him, let him lead you wherever it could be. And pretty sure it's not anywhere you imagine, <laughs> but trust that and enjoy it. My name is Susie Rapp and this is my story. I'm so appreciative of people like Susie Rapp who will stop and share a little bit of their testimony with us about how Jesus has transformed their lives, whether it be through their, their trials, their hardships, their mistakes, whatever it may be, and to be reminded that even in trying to do the right things for God and trying to honor God with our lives, sometimes there are some hardship and struggle that comes our direction, and yet in that process, God begins to transform us and shape us even more into the likeness of who he has called us to be. And that's really what this series has been about, the upside down. 
talking about how God wants to flip the script on our life and maybe even take it a direction that seems really counterintuitive to the world around us. I mean, I think about where we began over eight weeks ago, right? Happiness. Let's do a series on happiness. But as we began that discussion, the more we unpacked it, it did not seem like the happiness that I expected, right? Uh, You you want something that's going to always be encouraging and uplifting and always leaves you with a smile. And it it is that. But this happiness is about being rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the discussion of the happiness that Jesus calls us to, there is a grit, There is an authenticity. There's a rawness and a realness that requires us to live in a posture of surrender towards Jesus, knowing that he may rub some raw spots to begin to refine us into his likeness and into his character. And so consequently, as we've gone through this series on happiness, I think we all kind of expected rainbows and butterflies through most of it, only to realize going, oh, if that's what happiness is about, maybe I've been approaching it wrong. Maybe, I, maybe I've been having the wrong focus. Maybe it's been more about what I want than what God is asking of me. And so we've talked about this series, The Upside Down. And so here's the question. It's week nine. We want to wrap it up. Do you buy The Upside Down Life? Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, are you willing to take your chips and push them in the middle and say, following Jesus is the best decision for my life? See, many of us as Christ followers, we like the belief in Jesus, but we struggle with the following a life like Jesus. I have an influencer in my life. His name is Steve Siemens. He's uh, now become a man that's very influenced in Kiwanis. He's known internationally. He oversees an organization called the People Builders, and he's a, a man of encouragement in his life. But back in the day when I was in high school, I sang in a traveling choir. Okay, no music jokes. Okay, artist, not athlete. That's me. Okay, I get it, right? You know. But I traveled in this choir, and during the day, we would, we would sing all day. We would learn our parts. We would understand the performance that we were going to have. And then at night, we would spend some time kind of debriefing together uh, with other high school students. In those nights, we would actually spend a time kind of doing a devotion to talk about what does it mean to follow after the way of Jesus. And he had this phrase that he would say, and I believe every year I was in this choir, he would bring it up kind of as the foundational discussion uh, of every tour that we were going to be a part of. And this was his quote. There is nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, because we're in this room, everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's me. That's... What did he mean by that, though? There's nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. It rings very true for me some three decades later that that value is planted deeply in who I am. Because when he began to wrestle with this, he would say things like, you know, Jesus isn't something just to have a part of your life. Jesus is your way of life. And he would press into this idea of a surrendered life before Jesus will wreck and rearrange what your personal trajectory has in place for you. Isn't that what Susie said? 
who she viewed herself to be, who she thought she was going to be, the life she wanted to change, when God pressed something in front of her, she realized that life would be flipped. It would be transformed. Here's what I think Steve wanted us all to know, is that our relationship with God was not something just to be have, to have for ourselves, but it was a relationship of engagement and daily growth. That to know Jesus is to walk with Jesus, and to walk with Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. See, there's this reality, I think, that we're trying to really get to in this upside-down life. As Jesus is standing before a multitude and he's inviting people into the kingdom of God and he's declaring this new value system built on what the prophets of old had said, now made reality in real time before them all to be catalytic as a movement for years and generations to come. Here's all Jesus is trying to say. is that Jesus is our greatest reward. Jesus is our greatest reward. Our best that we could ever receive for our life is Jesus himself, not his things. For the life now and the life eternal, our greatest reward is Jesus. Jesus died for us so we can live for him. He's our greatest reward. Whether it's a good life or a pleasant life, whether it's a difficult or a hard life, it is still true that Jesus is our greatest reward. And I say all of that today because the final beatitude that Jesus presses us into begins to talk about a life that may be filled full of struggle. And as he's inviting us into this upside-down life that has so much for us to gain, he finishes with somewhat of a warning, a shot across the bow, that it's not going to always be rainbows and butterflies. There is going to be a refinement and a challenge for all of us in this world if we live a life that looks like him. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, is where we began this conversation, the Beatitudes, his Sermon on the Mount, the, the most public and most influential message of Jesus starts with these values that we call the Beatitudes of Jesus. Here's what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And then this is our first. This is our verse, verse 10. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if I was to finish a grand speech, I don't think that would be the last sentence I would say, right? It's already hard enough to take the posture 
of a spiritual beggar, of deep humility and meekness, and triumphing peace over the volatility of our world. Those are already huge challenges in and of themselves. And yet Jesus finishes with this understanding that persecution is perhaps the culmination of living this posture after him. We've been unpacking this journey of happiness with Jesus and we're reminded that this group of people were people who understood what it meant to be overlooked, oppressed, taken captive, enslaved, outcast of the world. And Jesus calls them the blessed ones. And not the one with the the two-hump camel over the one-hump camel. Not the one with the two-story house over the one-story house. Not the one with the larger life than everybody else. But those who have been downtrodden, beat up, and pushed to the side, marginalized. Jesus says, this is your dance. And so we began to look at this passage. And we asked you to look at it this way. This is the graphic we've been trying to use to kind of get a visual metaphor of how this series starts. We begin at the very, very beginning of this passage. And we recognize that those who are poor in spirit, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we finish in verse 10, blessed with those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two parallel statements from the beginning and the end. This is what it means like to live a life in the way of Jesus. And he builds off of each value so that we know as we begin to catalytically move forward into the character that God has called us to be, when we live that out, that this is what the life looks like. Always remembering that we are Spiritual beggars before God with nothing to offer. Everything we have is of him. And understanding that even in the life that we live, when we experience hardship, he is still with us and for us. Each building block is like a a block of of maturation of God's character in us. One by one, we digest these very words of Jesus. We surrender to his will and his way. We are empowered by God's spirit. We are given this new lease on life. And the outlook is way beyond just the circumstantial perspective that many of us live with. It becomes an eternal perspective that we see God's will being advanced and our life being transformed. Last week, Last week, Greg shared what it means to be a peacemaker. And it was intriguing. It was intriguing to hear this calling to be the kind of people that bring peace to this world only to turn around and hear the next verse follow up and say, as peacemakers, you should also expect that persecution may come your way. That's not the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to be able to to bring peace. We're supposed to be able to to be at peace with everyone. but, But the world doesn't honor a life like Jesus. We we don't live in a world that wants to value hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Our world fights it. It rewards a life of self. It fights it. We live in a world that likes to stand on the back of the merciful and the meek. And so when we think about persecution, we need to be reminded that persecution is simply a clash between two irreconcilable value systems, meaning 
To live a life of Jesus means that it will not automatically fit in the rhythm and the pattern of this world. And if it does, you are probably not living the values of Jesus. What do I mean by that? It probably means that Jesus has asked you to surrender or grow or obey. And somewhere along the way, you said no. And you claim a relationship with Jesus, but not a transformative relationship that changes you. So there's two questions. Two questions that come out of this verse that are challenging to us, knowing that uh, Jesus declares that our bankruptcy is really the foundation of our value of happiness. And he confirms this when he validates this new life, saying it will show up in hardships and tests and trials. Jesus begins to say that blessed are the persecuted. And the first question is, what does it mean to be persecuted? What does it mean to be persecuted? Literally, this word, if translated, it's this idea of to harass someone, specifically for behaving in the beliefs that they live out, meaning it it is a targeted, intentional approach against living out the way of God. Now, I want to just make sure that We all understand that sometimes being a a tool for Jesus does not mean being a tool for Jesus, if you know what I'm saying. Sometimes Christ followers can be the kind of people that are rude. They can be arrogant. We can be pugilistic. We can be judgmental. That's not what Jesus is inviting us into. But Jesus says, when you live away after me, it's counterintuitive to our world. Now, everyone who would have heard this would have begun to understand persecution because as the nation of Israel, they understood what it was like to be a people persecuted. They understand what it means to go into captivity. They understand what it means uh, to be thrown into slavery. They know what it means to be under the rule and oppression of evil leadership. When we think about it on an individual level, we think about Saul who persecuted David, right? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who actually stood up against the king and its wishes. Or Daniel who committed his life to a life of prayer and ultimately was thrown into the lion's den. Or we think about the prophets like Elijah who stood up against uh, uh, Jezebel. Or we think about Job and the battles that he went through. We think about Amos and Jeremiah and all the prophets of old who suffered because they were called by God to set a life and a pace that was different to the world around them. And the ridicule that they experienced and the challenge that they took, the adverse circumstances that they endured are part of the reason we consider them heroes. The ones who stood strong in faithfulness even when life got hard. And we know that even some of the first disciples the closest 12 to Jesus, that many of them either died in prison or due to persecution. And so Jesus makes this statement about blessed are those who are persecuted because they choose to live out the way of the kingdom. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus had gathered some of his disciples together and in John chapter 15, he says this to them. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. That's a phrase, it would love you like its own child. As it is, you don't belong to this world. But I have chosen you out of this world, and that is why the world hates you. Jesus says some crazy things once in a while, doesn't he? Jesus is kind of saying, hey, hey, time out. The Son of God, the Son of Man, me, God in flesh, even I will experience this. The pure, the blameless one, the one who is living a life that fully honors God says, I experience this. And he says these words not to taunt or to exploit, but to comfort. Meaning, it is worth it to live a life that honors God. And even when ridicule comes your way, God's faithfulness in us speaks louder than anything else spoken against us. Knowing that persecution is a possibility is vital that we understand that Jesus is our greatest reward. It's what we hold on to. Otherwise, the pursuit of our own preservation and comfort becomes the priority. We may avoid every experience that might mature us, might refine us in our walk with God. So here's the second question. Why are we to be persecuted for righteousness? Righteousness. Righteousness is basically right living before God and before others. You know, persecution can happen for a lot of reasons, and sometimes we mistake persecution as consequences from bad choices, or we, we embrace struggles in our life and say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Do you recognize this face, okay? Okay, some of you giggle, right? If you are a Cubs fan, which I am not, and you see this face, many Cubs fans used to claim the persecution of a curse, right? And in this playoff game, when Steve Bartman, out of his love for his team, love for the game, had a foul ball come his direction, he reached out and grabbed it, the entire nation of Cubs fans lost it, right? You lost it. Now, uh, the city of Chicago has kind of forgiven Steve Bartman, and they've kind of moved on because you did win a World Series, and a lot of peace has come to the Cubs nation. That is not persecution. That's a fan catching a ball, and you can't make the play. That's what that is. That's all it is. It's a consequence of having spectators in a crowd. That's all it is. And yet... Sometimes we embrace hardship or struggle or things that are outside of what we want as our life as I'm being persecuted, and Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus is referring to the response of a world that is opposed to his will and his way. Jesus is talking about the eternal struggle that happens in our world when we decide to live rightly by honoring God's will, by honoring God's way, and trying to bring peace to a world that, that fights peace. What does that look like? Well, the prophets of old, when they called us into a cadence of following after Jesus or after the way of God, Micah said it this way in his sixth chapter, starting in the second half of verse 8, he says, And what does the Lord require of us? 
to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus actually follows this uh, beatitude up with examples of persecution that may show up when we live out these values, when we embody what it means to be part of this upside-down kingdom. He says it literally after this beatitude. He says this in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Be great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before speaking falsely about you and tearing down your character because of who you are and how you're living out your faith. And understand this, friends. This is not a message simply for a pastor. This is a message for every Christ follower. Whether you serve faithfully as a police officer or as a nurse, as a school teacher, or a mother, or a friend, whether we fly planes, whatever we do with our life, to live in a way that honors God is the calling we are all given. Faithfulness, no matter the circumstances. Jesus reminds us, those are the kind of people that we hold up as heroes of the faith. They were persecuted. Jesus embodies the life of persecution, ultimately dying our death of sin on a cross, providing forgiveness for us all, life everlasting. Our Savior is a suffering Savior. What does persecution look like? I think persecution is unfamiliar for most of us as Americans. It's foreign to us, literally. But I think about it this way. I have a friend who leverages his life through business. He gives his life to Christ. He works within the marketplace all around the world. And because of his work throughout countries that are opposed to a way of Christian life, he is now literally a marked man and because of his influence into certain countries on the other side of the pond, for him to step off the plane means that he could embrace a life of imprisonment. That's persecution. I think about another friend on the other side of the world who he has uh, raised up orphanages. He has uh, helped many children, thousands of children who have been estranged. He has led people to Christ by the thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands by raising up disciples, raising up pastors, raising up churches. He is now a wanted man that others have been beat up and killed in his country for living out his faith that way. I think of friends of first, meaning partners of first, who are concerned if we bring up their name or their location publicly, that they would be expelled, imprisoned, or fear for their life. And do you know what they tell us about persecution? 
Do not pray that we would be removed from persecution, but that we may lead through it. I don't have that faith. I want to have that kind of faith. I pray that God is growing that kind of faith in me. But I do not fear my right or privilege to live out my faith in this world. And frankly, sometimes when I look at the things that I complain about in the world that I'm a part of, I'm embarrassed. Because there are those that are taking the gospel of Jesus into places that we would never dare to visit. They all live out their lives as the kingdom of God, believing this truth. Our greatest reward is Jesus. They embody the way of the kingdom of God, whether for for them it is easy or going the way they want. Their focus and their mission is to live out the way of Jesus with this kingdom mindset. Remember what Greg shared last week? This, This phrase just stuck in my head. Church people worry about what the world might change the church. Kingdom people work to see the church change the world. And as the American church, myself included, We are completely unfamiliar with persecution. Matter of fact, we can sometimes confuse inconvenience as persecution. Now, I know that there are people, there are men and women in this room that do experience persecution on a daily basis. And so, please, understand this is not about you. I see you, I recognize you, and I know that you are living out God's presence in our world real time. But this is, this is partly mine. When COVID hit and we could not meet, we got sidetracked about whether it was our right to gather or not. When COVID continued and we could not get back into the building, we kind of just stopped. If we couldn't have our one hour of public gathering, what was going to be about our faith? How were we going to grow? What did it mean for us in our relationship? And for some of us, for me at times, pursuing our faith, living out God's mission, we just froze. And so maybe today's word is a challenging word for us. We're reminded who Jesus is. We must be reminded who Jesus is. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the firstborn of all creation. Yes, he lived a blameless life, paid our price for our sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. He gives us new life, but he is so much more than that. He is the sustainer, the creator of everything. He is the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-present God in human flesh. God is not contained in a building and he's not bound by a virus. God is not calling the church to be a building but he's calling the church to live where we work and play. We must look beyond who may fill our seats and begin to ask, how are we going to begin to impact the local streets? When we deduce the work of the church down to a Sunday morning gathering, we miss the movement of God's spirit through God's disciples in the day in and day out moments that ultimately create this spiritual revolution that God has called us to. And Jesus is telling us this is the upside down way of life. One that mourns their sin and struggle, a life of humility and weakness, one that craves God and God's will for our lives above everything else. 
the one who lives a life of mercy and desires a pure heart and wants peace, even if it brings persecution to ourselves. We may face ridicule and hardships, but understand this too. The call to pursue righteousness exists, even if persecution does not. Persecution is not something that we should try and chase or make happen. But persecution and suffering are a part of God's processes. God uses these moments to strengthen us, to refine us, to deepen our walk, to rattle our cage. But it is always better for us to willfully surrender before God, to allow him to refine us and deepen us first. To surrender before God allows us to be prepared for whatever may or may not come our way. We should not try to manufacture persecution or stir stir up trouble. But Jesus says to those of us who mourn our sin, who take a posture of meekness and crave righteousness and are willing to show mercy, to be pure of heart and to give peace to a peaceless world, be careful. Because these are the irritants to a world opposed to the kingdom values. So we must embrace faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus and to Jesus' way alone. We must live as the people of God, as the kingdom of God, knowing that Jesus is our greatest reward. Personally, The kingdom of God is something that we must know, live, and share. Our relationship with Jesus should transform us in a way that it transforms the world around us. And if it's not, we should spend some time on our knees with God today and say, God, where am I pushing you away? Corporately, we must recognize that the kingdom of God is a movement of mission. That collectively we do this together. It's not simply about pithy statements or a novel thought. We must embrace them as the values of God and the characteristics of Jesus. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Happy are those who live upside down. For God will always be with them. Let's move to our time of response. Happiness looks totally different to me than what it did before we began this series. And maybe it does for you as well. But when our lives are rooted in Jesus and Jesus alone and our relationship with Jesus is what we hold on to in the midst of war or the midst of peace, we begin to have a perspective that sees life not only in the circumstantial but in the eternal. And so the question was, do you buy the upside-down life? You know, I, I know many of you, almost all of you, I think, in this room relatively well. I know a lot of the hardships some of you have gone through. Issues of death and loss. Struggles in the workplace. Battles in your marriage. being wrecked over finances. 
caught up in our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness. And yet, today in a moment of faithfulness, we sit together before God and before each other knowing that while this is a difficult season, maybe God is using this time to grow us through COVID and not just go through COVID. I think about our friends who are joining us online or our friends that are in Urbana today. And every one of us are in some difficult seasons of our lives right now. Whether life was really that hard or not, when inconvenience shows up, when we can't live the way we want, it rattles us. I've got friends whose businesses are on their last breath. I've got friends whose family are on their last breath. And in a message like today, sometimes it can just come across so heavy that you go, how are we going to make it? What's going to happen? When will it get back to normal? And I wonder if we just need to put to death the idol of normalcy and just say, God, you've called us to be abnormal, upside down, not to fit like a glove, but to swim counterintuitively to a world around us so that they might see the kingdom and not the best this world has to offer. And so maybe today what we're doing as we look back over the last nine months of the economic despair, the ethnic dis- disruptions of tension and racism, <laughs> as we look at the political divide as people have lost their ever-loving mind because of who does or who doesn't get an office, maybe as the church, it's time for us to anchor our happiness in Jesus. to look back at the prophets of old who gave their life for the cause of Christ. To look at Jesus who gave his life as the cause of Christ. To the disciples who followed, who gave their life knowing our risen Savior and would live every moment so that we might know this new way of life. Maybe God wants to deepen our well so that it's more than our attendance, so that it's more than our building, but it's about a radical group of people who are fully devoted to a surrendered life to God's word, God's spirit, and living the way of Jesus. Maybe you've got a prayer request you want to share with us, and so you want to take a connection card, and you want to take out the app. That's the easiest way to do it. And maybe you have a next step that you want to take, or you have a prayer request that you want to share, or maybe you need to get involved or grow, or maybe you just need to sit down and talk with somebody and say, I really need to walk through some some portions of my own walk in life. 
but don't let today go by without stirring something up in you before God of saying, okay, God, if you were to have your way in me, who would you call me to be? Am I living my life for your glory or your honor? Because if I'm not, please change me. You know, Jesus gathered his disciples Maybe you have the emblems in your home or here with us today. But when Jesus gathered his disciples, they were celebrating the Passover. They were being reminded of the deliverance of God through the people in Egypt. And he took some bread and he made this correlation. He said, this is my body. Meaning he was now the sacrificial lamb to pay the price for God's deliverance. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. While they were celebrating the Passover, the historic reminder of God's deliverance to the people of Israel, he also said, this wine, this cup, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Do you know one of the Gospels one of the accounts of that night. It literally says these words. And then they sang a hymn and they left. That's how the, the Passover experience finishes. They sang a hymn and they left. And do you know what the story is that follows immediately after that, that gospel? The betrayal of Jesus. How many times do we eat the bread and drink the juice and then sing the song and just walk right out to go back to a life that we know is not for what God wants in us? God, I would pray that we would not be those people. But even if we are, God's faithfulness is good to forgive us, to love us, to restore us, to redeem us, to strengthen us. time we often pause to take an offering and I can just tell you that God has provided for our church in ways we could not imagine right now we're getting ready to as a church we're getting ready to help some foster families and care for for some overlooked families and we do that because God's provided for us to do that right now we're making plans to go to an elementary school that we're going to bless a bunch of teachers and janitors and just people who oversee this elementary school and we can do that because God has provided we're going to take a Christmas offering to care for families that serve all around the world who either grew up here decided to go on the mission field from here or attend here but are a part of that great kingdom mission we do all that through the app challenge you. Every one of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a chance to give back to God. 
And God could open the clouds and he could write a check himself. But the pattern by which God expressed hope to be expressed, generosity to be dispersed, he says, is through the local church. And so today, if God challenges you, if God encourages you, if God convicts you to give, would you consider how generosity may be expressed in your life for his will and his way and his glory? Let's stand. Let's continue to respond in worship. And may we live every moment of our life that Jesus is our greatest hope.